And let me just begin by saying good morning and everybody. It's great to be here with you. I want to say a special greeting to those of you joining us by video right now. We were all together for worship last week on Easter. It's a great celebration that Jesus is alive and working in our world and our lives. And it's great to be here with you again today. We're starting something new today. We're starting a new series uh, called The Good and Beautiful Life. We're seeking the life that Jesus comes to offer us and form us for. And this new series called The Good and Beautiful Life is actually part two of kind of a longer journey. We did the prequel part already. uh, Part one of a journey called Restored, The Good and Beautiful God. And we've been learning to know the, the character and the identity of God as we get to know God in the person of Jesus. For the last three months, we've been taking the pictures of God that we form ourselves, that we've kind of picked up along the way of a God who might be angry or out to get us or distant or whatever it is, and and trading that picture in for the picture of God that we get when we meet God in Jesus. We've been learning that God is good and gracious, and we use the word generous sometimes in place of gracious, that God has life-transforming power for us. And I want to just really quick kind of do a review in like one minute or maybe two of the last three months. So if you are new today, you'll feel like, oh, I'm all caught up with everybody else. And if you were here for the last three months, you'll be like, oh, good, I remember something from the last three months, right? So uh, this is, here's my one-line summary of the Good and Beautiful God series that we just finished, and that's this. Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is what God has to say. Now, I honestly didn't make that up. That's just a paraphrase of a really central verse in the Christian New Testament. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The Word, of God, the word that's the Word of God, became flesh and dwelled among us. God's message, God's Word to us, became flesh as a person. Christian theologians have a complicated name for that. It's called incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelled among us. In other words, Jesus is what God has to say. I just want to acknowledge that's not a no-brainer, right? A lot of us thought God had something else to say. Besides that, we picked up these pictures of God. God has a word of judgment. God has a word of anger to say. Some of us think God actually doesn't have anything to say to me at all. God has very little to say. Jesus is what God has to say. Other world religions teach different things about who God is. Maybe some religions teach God is, what God has to say is a set of rules or cultural expectations, Some religions, the religion of Islam teaches that the Quran is what God has to say. Now, it's really important for us to acknowledge in the spirit of tolerance and kindness that different people, different adherents to Islam think they interpret that in very, very, very different ways. Nevertheless, that's what God has to say. Christians believe this deep conviction that Jesus is what God has to say. And it's in Jesus that we form, that we meet, that we receive a picture of the good and beautiful God. That's the answer to who is God, the biggest question of human life, who is God. We ask that question and answer it in that way. It is a direction setter for everything else that happens in our lives. It's it's the direction setter for our attitudes, for our beliefs, for our relationships, for the condition of our hearts. In this next series now, we're moving on from the question, who is God? And we're moving on to the next most important question in life, which is, who am I? And we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the message today and for the weeks to come. But before we talk about who am I, I want to ask you a different question to get us thinking about that, and that's this. Where does joy come from? Where do we find joy, goodness, and like, where does the good and beautiful life actually come from? Where does joy and happiness come from? Everybody I know wants joy in life, right? Parents, if you ask parents, what do you want for their kids? I want them to be happy. It's not exactly the same thing as joy, but it's close enough for today. Our country was founded on the idea that everybody enjoys certain inalienable rights and that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
I can take everybody I know who doesn't want joy in life and fit them in a smart car with room for luggage beside, right? <laughs> we all want joy. We all want joy and happiness in life. Where does it come from? I, I want to tell you a story here this morning. It actually, it's not a story in this case, actually from my own life. In this case, it's a story uh, that comes from this book right here, which is titled The Good and Beautiful Life. It's a supplement to our series here. I know a number of you picked up a copy of this at a book table in our lobby last week, and they're available again this week also. The author of that book is James Bryan Smith. Uh, Dr. Smith, he's a professor at a Christian college in Kansas. Before he was a professor, he was a chaplain, I think only for a short time at a retirement home. And one day, the office at the retirement home gave him a message and said, Ben would like you to come and visit. And then they said, have fun with that one. <laughs> Apparently, Ben was a little bit infamous in the retirement home. And Dr. Smith, I don't even know if he was Dr. Smith or not at that point, but Dr. Smith went down to see Ben. And he said, Ben just began asking me all kinds of questions. He, he engaged me in this sophisticated conversation about religion and philosophy and history. I felt like I was being interviewed or tested or something. And after half an hour of this, he said, thank you very much. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> Okay, I guess you will. And, and Dr. Smith came back the next day and the next day and the next day for six days. And finally, after a week, Ben began to confess. He confessed his life to Dr. Smith. And Ben had had a wildly successful life. He was born in 1910. And by 1935, as a 25-year-old young man, he had made his first million dollars, right? That's pretty hard by the time you're 25. Today, I imagine in 1935, it was even harder. He built very successful businesses. He was very powerful. I counted governors among my friends. He said, right now, I have so much money. I have so much wealth. I don't know how to spend it all. I couldn't possibly get rid of all the money that I have. This is probably a problem you'd all like to confess, right? <laughs> but Ben said, I've, I've wrecked my life. <laughs> One precious life on this earth. And I've wrecked my life. I, I used and hurt people getting to where I am. I've been divorced by all three of my wives because I neglected and ignored them or because they caught me in one of my many affairs. I have a daughter. She's in her 40s now. Won't even speak to me. Ben's in the last season of his life and he was pursuing a joyful life. He was looking for happiness, for the good and beautiful life, but he looked for it in the wrong place. And it turns out that when you don't know where joy comes from and chase it anyway, you can wreck your life. And I, I read that story, I think, I don't want that for me. I, I don't want to be in the last season of my life and go, I had a shot, <laughs> and I blew it. I don't want that for anybody. I don't, none, none of us want that for ourselves. I wouldn't want that for anybody. What I'd like to share with you today is the teaching, the, the announcement and the invitation and the teaching that Jesus offered his first disciples and the living, resurrected, raised from the dead, alive Easter Jesus continues to announce to us and invite us into now the foundation for a deeply joyful, truly good, and beautiful life. And this teaching of Jesus that I want to share with you today, I would say is his most central idea. It is Jesus' most central teaching, and yet one that most of us understand very little about, maybe his most underrated teaching. This announcement and this invitation and this teaching goes under the name of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. This was Jesus' central idea. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, this is what Jesus is saying. 
Most biblical scholars agree that the gospel of Mark was probably the first life story of Jesus written. Jesus' first words in the gospel of Mark and other gospels are about the kingdom of God. Let me read you what the gospel of Mark says about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is the gospel of Mark chapter 1 verse 14. After John was put in prison, this is John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. He was a forerunner of Jesus who baptized Jesus himself. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, that's a region in northern Israel, proclaiming the good news of God. This is Jesus' gospel sermon. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent, which just means turn from where you're going, turn to a new thing, and believe this good news. Jesus' headline message was the message of the kingdom of God. And when Jesus was killed at the end of his earthly life, it was for this. When Jesus was on trial before a Roman governor whose name was Pontius, they called him Pontius Pilate, and he's on trial, and they, this was what he was on trial for. Pilate's words to Jesus were, so are you a king or not? That was the question of the trial. And when Jesus was executed, the crime for which he received capital punishment, Romans would often put this on top of the cross where, where someone was being killed. They would put a summary of the charge above the victim's head so that anybody coming by on the road, crucifixions were usually done in very high traffic areas so people could see the dying victims. And they would look up there and they would see the charge. And the idea was people would see the charge and go, I don't want to do what he did, so I don't wind up like he wound up. And the charge over Jesus' head said, the king of the Jews. Right? This is what he was crucified for. Jesus' announcement all throughout his ministry was that the kingdom of God is, God is bringing his kingdom here in me. This is his central message. So what I'd like to do today, in very brief order, whole books could be written about this, and this is sort of a bird's eye preview of the road ahead, a, a map of where we're going for the next several weeks. I want to give you a very quick overview of Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God, his announcement and invitation into life. The first question we're going to ask is, what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom? By the way, if you have your worship bulletin with you right now, this is a great time to take out the study guide that's in there. It says community groups on the right-hand side of that. The older I get, the more stuff I forget, the more I need to write down. So if you're anything like me, you might want to write some stuff down as we go along. The first question we're going to ask is, what is the kingdom? And here's a, here's a one-line answer to what is the kingdom. It's where the king rules. Brilliant, right? Very creative. This is Pastor Angie and I both have kind of uh, used this as our one-line summary, our one-line definition of the kingdom of God. Anywhere the king is in charge in my life, in my heart, in my head, in my relationships, in our families, in our communities, in our nation, in our world, where the king rules is where the kingdom is. Let me give you the, the biblical basis for that teaching. And it comes from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. This is a passage actually where Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. A lot of Christians have come to call this the Lord's Prayer. If you've ever been in church before, you might have encountered this prayer somewhere. Uh, if not, I want to just introduce it to you right now anyway. Jesus taught his disciples, this is how you should pray. He said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is how we're beginning, right? We're praying to our Father in heaven and we're concerned for your reputation, for, for your name in the world. And then what's the first thing we pray for? Your kingdom come. And then we kind of define that. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying, God, for your kingdom to come, which is God's will being done. Where the king rules, where the king reigns, the king's will is accomplished, right? Man, I pray for that. I want to see that happen. I would love for God's will to be done in my life more than my will. That'd be better. I'd love for God's will to be done in my family more than my will or our wills. That'd be better. 
I'd love to look around my neighborhood. I'd love to look around our nation. I'd love to look around our world and say, oh man, I'd love to see God's will done here because there are lots of other wills happening. There are wills of hatred and anger and fear and violence and exclusion. There are wills of greed and selfishness, all kinds of other counter kingdoms being established. And I pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as I already know it's being done in heaven. So be it here. God, your kingdom come. The first simplest answer to what is the kingdom of God is it's the kingdom is where the king rules. Throughout this series, we're gonna learn more about this. Jesus taught about this a lot, unpacked it, helped us understand the character of the kingdom. We're gonna learn that. But today, we're just gonna start with that one-liner. The next question that we need to ask to understand Jesus' teaching about the kingdom is when is the kingdom? Here's my one-line answer to that question. When is the kingdom? Now and later. Now and later. Anybody eat those candies you ever eat now and laters? Two weeks ago, I had a little message. I ate a pickle as an illustration. Were you here? Do you remember the pickle? I thought I could eat now and laters today, but they last so long, I'd never be able to talk again, right? So, all right, the kingdom is now and later. Here's what I mean by that. There's There's a very powerful creative tension in Jesus' teaching about the kingdom. Sometimes Jesus said stuff like we heard read in both of our services today. He said, the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of God has come near. Here it is among us. There's a place in the gospel of Luke chapter 17. I love when people ask Jesus questions and he gives us clear answers. This is an example. Once on being asked by the Pharisees, that was another sort of teaching group uh, in Jesus' day, when the, asked when the kingdom of God would come. That's perfect. That's the question we're asking, right? Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed like you would say, nor people won't say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Or another way of translating that is, it's among you. Here it is. But then there are other places where Jesus teaches about the kingdom, and it sounds like the kingdom is a future reality. I just skip skip ahead a couple of chapters, and in Luke chapter 22, there's an account of Jesus giving his first followers a last supper, what many Christians today still celebrate as communion or the Lord's Supper. And it says this, after taking the cup, he, Jesus, gave thanks, he prayed, and he said to his disciples, Take this cup and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Like, it's a future reality. It's still coming. There, there's this tension between the kingdom as a present reality and the kingdom of God as a future reality. And a lot of Jesus' teaching is meant to try to explain this. So Jesus taught a lot in stories. He taught in parables. One time Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a field and a good farmer went out and sowed wheat in his field, right? So that the season has, has come, it's begun. The wheat is growing, fruit is growing, but there's also still weeds in the field. Somebody sowed weeds and the harvest time is still coming. He's trying to give him a picture for something that has begun, but we're not, that, not yet there. Another time Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, right? Starts like this, begins to grow, but later it becomes this big tree and the birds of the air can come and land in its branches. Like it's here, but, it's, but we're not there yet. There's a, another image the Bible uses to describe the presence of the Holy Spirit, the, the, the empowering presence of God among us. There's a couple of verses in the Bible that say that's like a down payment on a house. It's like, so you're not not the owner anymore. The transaction has begun, it's official, but you have the closing day has not arrived. You haven't really moved in yet, right? You're in this in-between time. So, so I'm summarizing this teaching as now and later. Right? A, lot of, a lot of Bible teachers, myself included, we, we say this is the already not yet kingdom of God, right? Or there, there are these longer, more complicated words, and theologians love them. I actually think these are kind of good twos, but you can forget them or write them down, whatever you want. The kingdom of God has already been inaugurated, 
but not yet fully consummated, right? So however many syllables you like in your words, pick one of those, pick one of those expressions. This corroborates our own experience, right? This is, this is how we live life. When we can see the work of God, we can see the kingdom of God coming, we see God's healing and restoration in us. I experience in my life, many of you have experienced this in your life, if you ever want to be encouraged by the work of God, the kingdom of God coming among us, restoring lives, that you can hear lots of stories of God's work in the lives of people in this church family. We have a, a website, a, a story library called heartofthestory.org. There's a lot of short videos. Some of the stories are written, and you can go and just hear about what God's doing in the lives of people in our church family. The kingdom of God is already coming, and yet it's also not yet here. I mean, you look at the brokenness in your own life, the pain, the affliction, the suffering, the hurting relationships, and you go, this, this can't be it yet. Like, we cannot possibly already be where Jesus said we're going to be, right? We're in that place in the middle. We're in that place in the middle. And I think it's terribly important that we understand this. I think it's terribly important that we understand that the kingdom of God is, still has a later dimension, a not yet dimension, a yet to be fully consummated dimension. Otherwise, we're going to get all confused about what the world is that Jesus is trying to make. On the other hand, it might be even more important that we understand the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. It is now. It is already. It has begun among us. And I think that's actually the weight of Jesus' teaching. That's the center of Jesus' teaching on this. His headline message is, the kingdom of God is at hand, so turn around and believe the good news. Come begin to live in the kingdom now. And that's what this series is going to be about. Jesus' announcement, the, the living Jesus, whose resurrection from the dead has already happened, who has unleashed the power of resurrection life in us and among us, announcing that and inviting us to begin living in the freedom and the power of God's kingdom now. And over the course of this series, that's what we're going to be learning to live into. Okay, if what the kingdom is, is where the king rules, and when the kingdom is, is now and later, and we're beginning to live into it, the last question I want to give you by way of summary or preview today is this. Who am I in the kingdom? Who am I in the kingdom? Jesus' longest, most detailed section of teaching about the kingdom is collected in the Gospel of Matthew in three chapters called the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in that teaching, Jesus says that, that we are not only citizens in the kingdom, but we are children of the king, children of our heavenly father. Let me just give you a couple verses as an example of that. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45. Jesus said to his disciples and to the crowds around, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, right? Like world-changing, revolutionary teaching, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And God's intention is for you to be chips off the old block, right? For you to reflect the character of our heavenly father whose character is reflected in our Lord, King, Savior, Jesus. Right? Like, like children might have the eye color or the jawline of their parents. Or as children, whether biological or adopted, this is actually maybe even better, we begin to take on some of the character of the family in which we were raised. Now, that's not always perfect in our human families, but we're meant to take on the character of our Heavenly Father. We're children of God. Okay, so here's the answer to who am I in the kingdom. This is a little bit longer than the other ones, and I'm hoping that over the course of the next couple of months, every person who's a part of First Lutheran Church will memorize this answer. I'm hoping that we say it so much, you're going to be murmuring this in your sleep at night, okay? All right, so let, let's put that up there. Here's, I'm going to read this myself once, and then I'm going to invite you to read it with me, okay? I am a child of God in whom Christ dwells, and I live in the unshakable kingdom of God. 
Could we, whether you're in the sanctuary by video right now, if you're here, could we all read that out loud together right now? I am a child of God in whom Christ dwells, and I live in the unshakable kingdom of God. As we come to understand who we are, as we come to understand our identity in Christ, in the kingdom of God, it heals us from the inside out. As that identity begins to be realized in us, stuff changes in our lives. And it, it overcomes all the fears in our lives. It overcomes the insecurities. It overcomes the self-protective instincts that drive so many of the things in our lives that we wish would change. And as we learn in this series who we are in Christ, as those fears inside of us are healed, then we're set free for a different kind of life on the outside. And throughout this series, week by week, we're going to be learning to live without anger. And we're going to be learning to live without lying and learning to live without lust and learning to live without greed and learning to live without vengeance as the fear inside us is healed and we begin to live into and put on the character of Christ. And we know who we are. We know who God is and we know who we are in relationship with God. That we are children of God. We belong in the family of God. We're children of God in whom Christ dwells and we live in the unshakable kingdom of God that cannot be taken away from us. This is the answer that we'll be learning. This is the answer that changed Ben's life. Remember Ben from the beginning of the story who confessed to James Bryan Smith that he'd wrecked his life? Over the course of that summer, this young Dr. Smith continued to visit with Ben and helped Ben understand who God was, helped him understand the grace and forgiveness and life-transforming power of God, helped him get to know God in Jesus, that Jesus is, who, is what God has to say. And by the end of that summer, Ben had received that grace and come to recognize who God is and counted himself as a child of God and a follower of Jesus, a child of God in whom Christ dwelled and a resident in the unshakable kingdom of God. And by the end of that summer, Dr. Smith had to move away. He took a new job. Ben was 75 years old that summer. 13 years later, when Ben would have been 88, Dr. Smith got a letter from Ben's daughter. Somehow Ben had reached out to her and she had taken the phone call. She had opened the letter and she came to visit and their relationship began to experience forgiveness. He confessed who he had been and what he had done, and they confessed their mutual anger with one another, and their relationship was restored, restored in forgiveness together. And she told Dr. Smith that Ben had died as a follower of Jesus Christ in the joy of the Lord, knowing what his life was, knowing what his identity was in the present and forever, evermore beyond the grave. It is never too late. Whatever age we are, it is never too late to take our first or next step with Jesus into the life that God has for us. Whether you're 88 like Ben, 78 or 58, 28, 18 or eight, doesn't really matter. It's always the right time for us to take our next step into knowing the good and beautiful God in Jesus Christ and the good and beautiful life that Christ forms us for when we know who God is and who we are in relationship to God. I wanna invite you to take your next steps as a part of this journey that we're on together. I already know, and I'll share with you, one of the important next steps for me in the kind of part two of this journey, and that is to be engaging fully and regularly with the soul training exercises that are on the front of the study guide that you were just taking notes on. We hide them there in a secret place right on the front page of that study guide. So if you ever want to use them, that's where they are. In my own experience, in the last part of this series, that wasn't a regular enough practice in my life, and I can feel the Spirit working through that already for me. 
Another important step, another school of the Holy Spirit in our lives is worship on Sunday mornings. We come here each week. I want to invite you and challenge you to be here each week as part of this series. This is a place where we gather together around the Word of God to receive the teaching of Jesus, to worship and sing and pray and be in community with one another, to be strengthened for the good and beautiful life together. And it is a journey together. I know hundreds of you are already in community groups here, and that's a life-strengthening, restoring experience. Some of you are not yet. You may be taking a first step at our Next Step lunch today. Maybe you're planning on being a part of the discussion group that starts next week or want to be a part of a a long-term community group. You can read about all those options uh, in our worship bulletin uh, here this morning. I want to invite you to take the next step that God has for you. Let's finish today by reading that line three, uh, that third point again, and then I want to pray for us. Let's, let's say this out loud all together. I am a child of God in whom Christ dwells, and I live in the unshakable kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for coming to find us and save us, for coming to restore us, for telling us who you are, for having something to say to us, and that your word is so good and beautiful that it is Jesus. And I pray that you would heal the images of you that we have formed along the way that hold us back and break our hearts and break our relationships. And that you would help us to see your good and beautiful character in Jesus. And I pray that you would restore the good and beautiful life in us. Help us to know who we are. Teach us your way, God. We pray that you would help us know who we are, children in your family, beloved, living unshakably in your unshakable kingdom. Take away our fears and set us free. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.